Welcome, everyone, to Stock in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your co-host and one of the two media strategy nerds, Eitan, and with me, as always, is Carl. Hey, Carl. Hey, everyone. Welcome to our, I think, first official episode. We've had some trial episodes, but this is the first thing we're really excited about, our theming and our structure, and just excited to dive in. And I think we've got a pretty interesting topic today. We're going to be talking about the theatrical value chain and some news that came up this week. Yeah, something something major happening this uh, this week. Something that I guess for the regular bystanders might seem like you know business as usual in the media landscape, but it's actually pretty pretty major. And that is the deal that AMC, the largest uh, movie theater company in the United States struck a deal with Universal, and we're going to be walking you through what it means, where it comes from, and it should be a pretty interesting conversation. Yeah, this has been kind of our Super Bowl the last few months, is watching AMC and Universal battle it out, partially because it's so emblematic of what's going on in the industry, but really it's kind of the first blows in looking at what's going to happen next in, in theatrical entertainment and distribution. So... Trolls World Tour was one of the first casualties of COVID from a film distribution <laughs> perspective. It was supposed to come out right in that March-April timeline, and just Universal decided to dump it on VOD. Then headline came out and said that they had about $100 million worth of revenue from Trolls World Tour from VOD, and Universal didn't see the need to release things theatrically anymore. Yeah, and then basically AMC, one of the biggest theaters in the, again, in, in the U.S. and in the world, I think it's the biggest in the world, um, came out and said, like, well, if you don't see the need to release all of your movies in movie theaters first, we don't see the need why to carry your movies going forward. So the AMC CEO came out with a letter that they sent to Universal and said, we're not going to carry your movies anymore. And that means the Fast and Furious series, which is one of the highest grossing series of all time. Your, the new Jurassic World, which was supposed to come out next year. Just major, major movie. So this definitely escalated very, very quickly. Yeah. And AMC, like you said, is one of the largest chains in the world, if not the largest. They own Odeon, which is a UK-based distribution chain. There's a major Chinese investor that has a stake in, in AMC. It's definitely a, a global affair. And in the United States... A lot of the theaters really, I mean, they don't collude with each other because that would be illegal, but essentially they collude with each other through an organization called NATO, which is not the North Atlantic Treaty, or <laughs> what is it, North Atlantic Trade Organization. It is the yep. National Association of Theater Owners. NATO. More important, more powerful. NATO is really just, they have this conference called CinemaCon every year that they bring in all the the producers and distributors that are looking to put the movies in theaters and really help program the whole year. And it's a, it's a whole thing. And you know what? It, despite the rumblings from universal universal really can't lose the theater chains yet because they're so profitable for universal. Yeah. And at the same time, the, the universal, uh, sorry, the movie theaters can't lose universal. If they lose some of these tent poles, uh, tent pole studios and their movies, they are, they're, 
they're already going through a pretty hard time. They're going to suffer just more. And this is one of those conversations, Carl, where in order for us to be able to uh, go through everything that this deal means, we're going to have to step back in history from time to time. But they, why, why don't we start with kind of what the deal was and what happened and kind of what changed, and then we can go back to kind of how the world was today and why why it was like that. Right. So the initial pitch from Universal was they kind of walked their words back. Originally it came out, hey, we just want to go to VOD. VOD is the future. And by VOD, I mean video on demand, like you're paying 20 bucks to rent a movie. It's not 20 bucks to own a movie, and it's not the normal rental fee that you would see if you went and tried to rent something from five years ago on Amazon. It's, it's going to be a, a premium price. Yeah, I've seen it actually being called literally premium VOD, yeah. which might be a, a clean... A clean difference. Yeah, I, I think that's, we'll use that terminology in the rest of this conversation, premium VOD. And with that, the the pitch was, okay, we want to release these films on premium VOD day and date when we release a film in theaters, which is a huge difference from how it's been uh, previously. So right now, NATO has a rule. It's a 60-day theatrical window. So if you release a movie in North America in NATO theaters, which is most theaters in the country, the primary chains are Cinemark, AMC, Regal. There's a lot of independent distributors as well that are a part of NATO or at least kind of follow the rules. And in order to release a film in those theaters, you have to wait 60 days before you put it on VOD of any kind or streaming. So with that, there's been some... There's been a lot of rumblings about this this window for the last few years, primarily with Netflix. So with movies like Roma and The Irishman, Netflix wanted to push to 45 days or even 30 days. Because for, for Netflix, they don't really care about the theatrical distribution beyond the prestige of it. They want people to see it in the theaters if they want to in the major metros and they want the awards attention. But it's not their bread and butter. Right, which is interesting because they, there is a couple of dimensions at play here. One is the, the business one, which you mentioned, right? There is a, the theaters are very important for the studios because a bulk of their money can come from here. But they're starting to realize that for some movies, at least, it might make sense to go straight to VOD and make the same amount of money, if not more. And then there is also the side of, I guess, not only prestige for Netflix, but there is like the Academy Awards, the Oscars, have rules that if you want to be eligible for an Oscar... You need to be, and please correct me if I'm wrong, at least for two weeks in the theater in LA or New York, something like this. So it's not only it's not only business, but it's also awards, and it's also just a mix of how things have been done for almost a hundred years, and just how the streaming and everything new that's happening has kind of came crushing into. Wait, this rule doesn't. Why does this make sense? This this might not make sense. It might make sense to change it. Right. And theatrical distribution is something that like, every filmmaker wants to see their movie in, in, on a large screen. It is like, this premium experience, but most people aren't. Like, a lot of people aren't paying for it and turning out in droves to see random indie movie on a Monday night. Instead, they're going to go on a Thursday or Friday to see the big blockbuster. So for a lot of films, trying to navigate the economics of how these are released is really tricky. And is something that 
people are grappling with right now? Yeah, so uh, kind of um, last month, like Carl was saying, Trolls War Tool comes out, AMC gets very angry, Universal says, well, this is what's happening. And it's been at limbo. Like, people were talking, they were saying, like, this is not going to happen. Like, they're going to get back together because they need each other. So there has to be some sort of compromise. And uh, basically, out of the blue, this week came out that they had reached an agreement where they agreed to decrease this theatrical window from the 60 days that was kind of the standard, and it could go up all the way to like 90 days. They were going to decrease it to three weekends. So basically 17 days was all that Universal would need to have it in movies before releasing it in premium VOD, only premium VOD. And whenever they wanted to either sell the rights to a Netflix or something like this, or they wanted to release it in the regular rent or buy, they still had to wait kind of the 60 to, to 90 days. Right. So with if you look at the, the budgets of these films, so something like the original Trolls, it came out in 2016, cost $125 million to make, made 350 roughly worldwide in the box office. So... All in all, so you, we've talked about this on this podcast before, but like I said, this is supposed to be our kind of launch episode, so we're going to reiterate it, which is when you look at box office receipts, roughly you divide it in half because 50% goes to the theater and 50% goes to the rest of the value chain. And for a company like Universal, they handle their own distribution, so they're not dividing the money up between a distributor and a producer, which we'll get to later. So you can say that Universal took home about $175 million off of, off of the original Trolls, cost $125 to make. They, they about broke even, but I'm sure they made so much money on merchandising and deals with Netflix for the, the DreamWorks shows that they did that it made total sense to greenlight a sequel and go on with that. But if you look at what they said they took in from VOD in the first few weeks, it was $100 million. That's probably what they would have done over a few weeks in theatrical. But this is an abnormal time. They're not going to pull in that much money, except for the fact that everyone was stuck at home going crazy with their kids at the beginning of covid with nothing else to do, and it was a new movie that their kids were excited about, so they were going to spend 20 bucks to see that. But that's 20 bucks for an entire household to watch it. Whereas if you go to a theater, that's 40 to 60 bucks for a household. Right. So you're pulling in way more money in a theatrical, in a normal theatrical setting. And yeah, they, they can pull in higher a higher percentage of those revenues because you're only going to pay a premium VOD company like Amazon, like 30% instead of 50%. But those revenues are going to be so much smaller so that the profits all end up being less than theatrical. Something that it's so funny to me that I think we're going to look back and laugh is that Trolls World Tour is going to go down in history as like this super important movie that changed the landscape in media. Is <laughs> this super random Trolls music. I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> that seems like such an interesting uh, development. Uh, but following up to what you were saying, it's uh, I think it's also important for us to clarify that even though in general the movies end up getting split 50-50 between the the studios and the movie theaters, is that it, it actually changes over time. So 
this is kind of a rule of thumb. But in general, during the first couple of, of weekends, more money goes to the studio and less goes to the theater. And as time goes by, more money goes to the studios and less to the sorry, more money goes to the theaters and less to the studios. And this is also aligned with how these movies usually make money. The majority of these movies make most of their money in the first couple of weekends. So you might also be seeing, hearing to what we're saying and being like, wait, so not only did AMC agree to decrease the window, but they agreed to decrease it to the weeks where they make the least amount of money in terms of percentage-wise from the studios. And the answer is yes, but they sneaked, they didn't sneak it, but they basically agreed that they're going to take around a 10% cut or up to a 10% cut from the revenues from this premium VOD run. So suddenly for AMC, if let's say Jurassic World 3 next year comes out, Universal decides to have it for three weeks in the theater and then leave it more, but have it in VOD and rent it for 20, AMC is going to get up to 10% of that moment without doing anything, which is pretty sweet. They suddenly have a different revenue model with basically zero costs and well, where they don't have any, they don't have to do any of the legwork that Universal is going to have to do marketing wise and uh, with everything. So it's actually something it's interesting that they were able to do that. Yeah. And it really speaks to the duality of this problem. Whereas I, many lay people I see talking about this are always like, well, why on earth would Universal agree to these terms? Theaters are dead. Who cares? And the answer is Universal needs the money. Everyone needs the money. And you're just <laughs> not going to pull in as much money from VOD. It's just not as exciting. It's not as flashy. And just the kind of cost per ticket is, or the revenue per ticket is much higher than the revenue per stream or per person streaming. And it, that's why this makes total sense. If the theaters didn't have power, there would be none of this, okay, we're going to give you a 10% kickback thing. Like, this makes absolute sense. And as Eitan alluded to, the way films make money in the theater has changed drastically. As the world has moved more and more towards these blockbuster event films, the graphs get kind of stranger and stranger. If you look at an, at an older film, even something like, like Avatar or Titanic, which are incredibly high-grossing films, yeah, not necessarily part of a, a franchise, so not a perfect comparison. It's a much smoother curve from zero dollars to the ultimate gross that they reach. Whereas if you look at Avengers Endgame, it's almost like a vertical line for the first few weeks, and then it flattens out and crawls to three billion. It is a much different world where those first two weeks matter so much more than the other weeks that, yeah, I, I think AMC realized that they would be leaving money on the table by not agreeing to a deal, but also this kind of diversifies their risk and, and helps with films that don't necessarily do better or are growers. They still get a, a cutback, a kickback from that VOD profit. Right. And this is something, I mean, it might be a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's worth talking about. Imagine, put yourself in the shoes of everyone else, right? Either all the other theaters or all the other studios. AMC is going to get 10% of the premium VOD of any movie Universal releases in premium VOD. Let's say you're Cinemark. 
do you suddenly feel bad that you weren't more kind of you didn't hold your ground and you didn't say universal i'm not gonna get your movies because now even if they go out and they say hey i want to negotiate the same deal universal has a you know a limited pie that they can give out they're not gonna be like okay and then from all the money that we're gonna make from bod we're gonna give 10 percent to amc we're gonna give eight percent to cinema we're gonna give six percent to regal we're gonna give four percent to whatever we're gonna give x percent to the association of independent movie theaters because then all of a sudden they're losing all of their margins just by paying the theaters, which makes no sense. On the other side, if you are a studio, suddenly it's going to be very easy to see who are the big dogs. Like you can see Disney coming here and be like, Universal, I want the same deal. I can imagine, I tweeted it. I imagined Bob Iger surrounded by Luke Skywalker, Iron Man, Woody from Toy Story, Elsa, <laughs> and a live action like Mufasa being like, yes, I'll take the same deal, but I want half the days and I'm going to give you half the money. Say no. Right? So then it's going gonna, it's gonna to come up with so many of these individual deals that each studio is going to have with different movie theaters. And it's just going to be fascinating to see where, where it goes. I, do you see other, like Cinemark right now, literally calling Universal, trying to get a, an appointment in order to get the same deal? Yeah, I, that 10% number I've seen floated around. Like, I... I would love to see what the actual terms of that are, because like you said, like like you're alluding to, it's pretty unsustainable for them to give 10% to every possible suitor that comes along. Uh, I, I think long-term, what ultimately ends up happening is something like, like NATO grew out of the fact that it was a, a thorny matter to coordinate the distribution and, and all of this bargaining at such a, at such a wide scale between the myriad distributors and and theater chains and just everyone that wants a piece of this pie. So I imagine that it just becomes something that becomes standardized through NATO and equivalent world global organizations. But I don't know how they divvy up the profits. I don't know how any of that works. But I, I think this deal is going to be abnormal from that perspective. But, I mean... The other thing that could happen is we've returned to something that's more like the studio system of the 1940s, where it's, it's not quite a one-to-one -one comparison, but up until 1948, when the Supreme Court broke down the system, there were massive studios that owned their entire production and distribution pipeline end-to-end. -end. So someone like Fox, they owned the, the sound stages content was made on they owned the actors and actresses via contracts who made those movies and all the talent that made the films they could make them all simultaneously on these sound stages people would be making multiple films at once they package them together and then go directly to their own theaters so if you go to atlanta or to oakland there's fox theaters that are now just performance venues those were literally just owned by the fox corporation back in the 40s before this was all split up uh and if they didn't they didn't just stay within their own theaters they'd go to independent theaters which there were thousands of in the 1940s and say if you want to play a fox movie you can play a fox movie but you also need to play two other fox movies that aren't the one you want so there was this kind of antitrust like actual collusion going on where it was forcing the hand of people and creating this kind of artificial scarcity. So certain 
independent theaters and certain chains essentially ended up being a Fox chain or a Fox theater, even if it wasn't a Fox theater. So you can see something like this happening where AMZ becomes the universal brand. I don't know who gets Disney. I don't know who gets <laughs> whatever. I I would be certainly, if I was Cinemark and Regal, I'd be calling Bob I I mean, probably Bob Chapek, just as a formality, but Bob Iger and trying to get a deal right now because <laughs> yeah. you get Disney and Fox, you're going to be good to go. Yeah, you're going to be oof. Yeah, because also when you start thinking about being uh, strategic about this, you don't only care about the movies that are going to have the biggest theatrical run. You start caring about the movies that are going to get the larger run in general and at home. And then it's probably things like Disney. It's going to be things that you're going to be like the IP that is the strongest or have the, the broadest catalog. And I don't know, so many things kind of get together. And it's 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 pretty interesting. But I think you, you started talking about it. And I think we should we should also continue down that path of the story and kind of what, what was happening in the 40s and what happened later. So, Carl, you already talked a little bit about the side from the from the theaters, right? They were getting basically stronghold by the studios because they were so incredibly strong. They had to buy, it's, I think it's usually called block booking, which is this mm -hmm. term when they had to buy multiple movies from the same studio in order to show one. And this not only affected the independent theaters, it also affected the independent producers because then you're suddenly a producer and you come to this, uh, I can imagine the Alamo Draft House of the 40s, and say like, hey, I have this movie and I want to show it. And they're like, well, I wanted to get Gone with the Wind, so I have to show these other 20 uh, Warner Brother movies. So uh, sorry, but can't do. Right? They literally had this huge, huge monopoly where they just controlled an, in, an insane amount of the market. And kind of what ended up happening through a series, I think it was like three, probably you know more about this, three different lawsuits and three different cases is that there ended up being uh, this kind of antitrust decision by the Supreme Court, which is called the, the Paramount Decrease. Right. It just completely decimated the, the system and made it so that studios could no longer control both the production of and ultimate exhibition of the films that they're making because just so much around this block booking and even just the owning theaters end to end was just making it so it was impossible for people to compete. Uh, famously, Shirley Temple was supposed to be in the Wizard of Oz and Fox wouldn't let her out of her contract because Wizard of Oz was an MGM picture. And at that time she wasn't a free agent. She didn't have the ability to say, well, they're paying me more. See you later. Because she was kind of indentured to Fox at the time. And that was common practice up until the late 40s. But I, I think an important piece of context here is that when we say theaters today, people imagine like their suburban, megaplex, multiplex. So you go to the mall, there's an eight-screen theater in there. You go outside of town, there's a 20-screen theater outside of town. All in all, there were far more movie theaters in the United States in the 1940s than there are today. Just as far as physical discrete locations and people managing them and just the infrastructure was far more distributed and far more numerous. Every town had like one or, uh, one or two screen movie house where they would show these things. But the innovation 
is the multiplex, where in the Midwest, somebody had the idea of cutting down their theater real estate in half and saying, oh, I can put two screens in the same space. I can show two movies at once, and that becomes eight movies at once. And you're having smaller screens. They're no longer these glamorous, glorious theaters, but you can show multiple things at once. And that's when everything starts collapsing on top of the studio system collapsing. Then you start having all the power concentrated in the theater chains and a few theaters with more of a real estate holding. Yeah, I think I saw a number somewhere that these eight studios, which we can go through them, they control 17% of the discrete number of theaters, but they control almost 80% of the screens, which just goes to your point, right? They started getting all the ones that had the most screens and the ones that people would like to go because they have more options. So even though you could say like, well, 17% of the theaters, right? That's not bad, but almost 80% of the screens. Right. And really, there were very few independent producers in the 1940s. I mean, the list of people who survived, essentially, the Disney was independent, had to work with their distribution chains. It was they, they didn't own these theatrical distribution deals end to end like all the other studios did. Uh, and then a lot of artists got together, spearheaded by Charlie Chaplin and formed United Artists, which was just a coalition of artists that were doing their own independent work that wanted to put out their own movies their way rather than in the studio system. But realistically, it was just eight studios that controlled everything and you had to do what they said. And I think it's it's it might be worth going going through these studios. I can pull them up here, but I believe they included um, Paramount, which was the largest, and that's why the decrease ended up being called the Paramount decrease. It included 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, Universal, MGM, Columbia, something called RKO, which was the one through which Walt Disney distributed, and I'm missing one. Dang it. See, I'm blanking on what that was because I was hoping RKO would be the one you forgot, but it wasn't. <laughs> I'm going to find it. I'm impressed that you memorized all of those. Way to go. Almost, right? I'm, I'm pretty, yeah, pretty happy. But I, I honestly memorize them because, like you said, Walt Disney wasn't one of them. And I'm sure we're going to get to them and why it was different. But when we say Walt Disney in the 1930s and 40s, it's literally Walt Disney. It's not the Disney Corporation. I, I think we have glossed over this, but... There, to get a movie from its finished state where somebody has edited it, made a the perfect little thing that you can display, is a logistics challenge. And that's why distributors matter. It used to be all done in-house, but now it's this insane thing. It's a lot easier than it used to be. But let's say you are a somebody who has produced a film in 1960, post-studio system. And you want to get your movie into theaters. You can't just like mail a copy of, of your movie to everyone and say, play my movie, watch my movie, it's great. There's physical capital involved. I actually, when I lived in Dallas, I lived in a renovated warehouse that was the Paramount Pictures warehouse in Dallas, where that's where just Paramount stored their film for the region, like the Midwestern Southern region of the United States, because in order to show a movie, you had to make a copy of that movie on film, which is incredibly expensive on this very flammable, fragile thing and physically bring it to a theater that was going to play it. That's not something for the faint of heart. 
And once the studio system fell apart, you had the independent distributors and exhibitors. You had to figure out a way to do that. So somebody had to have the, like, the logistics know-how to get one print from the producer, make copies of it, transport copies, and get it to a theater. But on top of that, before that even happens, you have to convince theaters that they want to carry your movie over someone else's. And when we were talking about block booking, that made it easy. Because you want to call it carry Gone with the Wind? Well, you got to have to show the other two MGM musical comedies they put together in three days on the set next to Gone with the Wind. That was easy. But now you have everyone jockeying for attention. It's difficult to do. And it's just the job of a distributor was is very difficult and was even more difficult when you had the film world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to have another tangent here because I'm going to be the person of the tangents today. Uh, this is just for context. This is one of the topics that Carl knows significantly more than I do. So I usually, when I do my research, I fall into the rabbit holes that are super interesting to me. So talking about what Carl was saying of the how complicated it was to get these theaters to show up production, but also how capital intensive it was, let me tell you a little bit about Fantasia. Fantasia is the third feature film that Walt Disney makes after Snow White and Seven Dwarfs and Pinocchio. And they have this idea to do these seven shorts with musical, with classical musical, classical, classical music as background. And then they add the, the Sorcerer's Apprentice at the end for different reasons. That is going to be way too long to explain. And they work with RKO to distribute them. What happens is they want they create this new system for sound called Fantasound, Fantasound, which is literally the first studio audio system in the world. And creating this is incredibly expensive. So they develop around 13 of these. So what RKO does says, okay, I can distribute your movie anywhere or everywhere because you only have 13 of these that can play. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna do this thing called a roadshow, which I don't believe it exists anymore, but it sounds pretty cool. Which basically means that the movie like Fantasia existed like a like an actual theater play would exist now, which is they would get 12 theaters or 13 theaters across the country, and they would put Fantasia there, and they would get two or three different screenings throughout the day, and that's all that theater would do. So, for example, there is this Broadway theater in New York that had Fantasia for a year for 52 weeks shown with, with Fantasia sound. A theater in LA carried it for almost 40. A theater in San Francisco carried it for 38. And these 13, 12 theaters were the only places where you could see Fantasia for over a year. It didn't get broad distribution because the faint sound system was so incredibly difficult to produce. And because you, you started to get people going to the cities just to see these movies. You started, uh, there are stories of how difficult it was to get a ticket and all the logistics that it meant for literally the booking system and the reservation system to be able to deal with it. And it's just one of those things that I feel like, at least personally, I look I look today and I'm like, yeah, of course, right? Distribution is easy. I'm sure you send a file or something. And then I look back and I'm like, wow, this is incredible. Well, to put a button on what you were saying about sending a file, it is literally that easy. They have something called DCP, which is Digital Cinema Package. It's a lossless, pretty uncompressed video file with a lot of uh, DRM on it. 
that they sent to these theaters and it's just a massive thing and it, it's yeah basically a file download but the roadshow point is, is really fascinating and it's just endemic as to how difficult distribution used to be even just the point where somebody like disney had to scrounge for theaters and just bounce between engagements of cities so okay you're booked all but this week we're going to be in your theater that week doing this and you do actually see road roadshows a little bit today but they're more of a gimmick so uh tarantino likes to do roadshows with with his films like hateful eight did a 70 millimeter roadshow but just the scale of this is, is incredible i mean with the 70 millimeter roadshows which is really the the 60s of like you had sound of music 2001 these massive film prints on 70 millimeter film which is larger than 35 millimeter which is the typical gate you see i won't get too nerdy here but uh, I had the opportunity to go see 2001 A Space Odyssey on 70mm in Portland in January. And they actually have this theater, it's the Hollywood Theater in Portland. They have their own personal film print that they had Warner Brothers print for them. And they paid very handsomely for that. But it weighs 400 pounds, all of the film that they have. I think it was on six different canisters that they had to, to transfer transition between that's how heavy this stuff is like it's it's no joke it's much easier today but they had to carry this incredibly flammable stuff around the country from theater to theater just to jockey for two weeks to play on a screen it's no longer this like thing the easy downloadable thing that's just a scheduling game in excel right oh yeah incredible Thanks for thanks for listening to this tangent, uh, this nerdy tangent, to explain how complicated uh, this actually was. Uh, it must really, it must have felt like a treasure hunt. Right? There's trying to find where to watch it and where to go, and no internet, right? How to find it, how how to get there. Anyway, I digress. It's just it's just fascinating stuff. Oh, here it is. The, I I found it. The other studio was United Artists. United Artists has kind of a murky history because. It was all of these independent distributors or independent producers, rather, that all banded together and decided, okay, we can play this game too. We're going to be Playground Bullies too, but we're all going to unite and it's going to be kind of communalistic and we're all going to figure it out. All of this context just speaks to how tricky this game of distributing has always been. And it's gotten easier, but it's also gotten harder in a way because you have these theater chains that have more power than they used to, especially today compared to the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, it's now this distributed and bifurcated model, actually kind of trifurcated. If, if that's a word, I have no idea if trifurcated sure. is a word. We'll, we'll call it a word. So essentially the most, the most reductive I can be about this is that you have producers, distributors, and exhibitors. You have the people that actually point the camera at something and make a movie, edit <laughs> it, package it, pull it all together. There's thousands of people that go into that process, and this is massive capital-intensive process. You have the distributors, who are the ones that actually do the legwork of getting the finished product into a theater. And then you have the exhibitors, which are theaters, or now you have streaming platforms, VOD platforms, what have you. And it's really not until the last 
20 years or so that the distributor has been the big sexy thing to be. It's a, it's a great business to be in. It's always been a great business. But in the 60s and 70s, you saw the rise of these indie producers who knew that if they, since they had the power now and they were no longer trapped in the studio system, they could put a bunch of money into an idea and into some creative talent, come up with a product, hand it to somebody that can get it in a theater, or just hand it to a theater directly if they knew the people, and then move on uh, down the chain and get get off the ticket revenue. Somebody like Roger Corman is a major figure. Uh, in the 70s, he gave the start to people like Martin Scorsese or Jonathan Demme. And this guy, what he did was he just had a bunch of bad B-movie scripts that he knew would make money. And he went to these directors and said, hey, if you make this movie for me, I will let you do whatever you want to stick to the script, stick to the premise. And you can make it however you want in whatever way you want and as artistic as you want. And with that, like he knew that he was going to make bank and he could get these movies into theaters because theaters just wanted some B-movie thing to draw in audiences. But over time more people realized that they could play that game too. And it got more crowded. So with that, uh, you see in the 70s more and more of these indie producers coming around. The 90s is an explosion with people like Harvey Weinstein uh, who are actually turning this into a massive game at the same level as the studios. Because when you're in a studio, it's always easier. Studios manage their own distribution in-house. So Disney has Buena Vista, which is their distribution arm. And they just, like, they can call up AMC and say, hey, three years from now we're going to have a Star Wars movie, keep a weekend open for us, or keep a theater open for us, and they'll keep 12 theaters open now for a Star Wars movie. But if you're an indie producer, it's a lot harder to do that. But that's where people like Harvey Weinstein, who was incredibly successful at his job because he was a terrible human being, um, he was able to go to Cannes, find a movie like or go to Sundance, find a movie like Sex, Lies, and Videotape that did incredibly well at Sundance, take it to Cannes, once it was at Cannes, introduce it to worldwide distributors that were able to put it into theaters all around the world and all around the U.S. and actually make money. And just that that's how it's come from. And just to wrap this kind of digression down... In the last 20 years, you've seen more and more people entering the indie distribution game. A24 is kind of the big sexy one right now because they came in and said, oh, there's nobody really doing boutique distribution and making bets on these films that are being produced that are like really cool and, and interesting. I mean, not at the scale where they're like making a brand for themselves. It's very much like an inside Hollywood power player, power broker position. And A24 decided to use social media to actually capitalize on that. Neon's another one. They most recently released Parasite. These companies are doing well for themselves and it's becoming more of a thing people do. Yeah, and it's interesting how a lot of these things are kind of cyclical, right? Because like you were saying, right? You're a Neon, which this year you got Parasite and I believe they also distributed a Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Or you have A24, which did Uncut Gems. Aren't they the guys from like Midsommar? Um, everything Ari Aster, is it? It's them. Yes, and okay. they they really hit it big with more like Moonlight, Lady Bird. Right. 2016, 2017 was more their pocket. Right, and then suddenly, kind of where you start seeing the tailwind is when these guys come up and then become very important. Then also, 
people feel comfortable doing more independent movies because they know they're going to have an independent distributor, right? And then there is kind of a cycle where it goes down and then it goes back to studios. And uh, you can see it. I think you talked a little bit how it seems like the producers were the 70s and the 90s, but then the distributors were like the the 2000s and now the 2020s again. So it's it's definitely something something interesting to see. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating just to watch this process change and evolve. Uh, and it's a smart game to get into. I mean, I think a mutual favorite failed startup of ours is, or a <laughs> failed startup that we both love is MoviePass. Oh, yeah. I think you thought I was going to say Quibi, but I said MoviePass. <laughs> I'm sure our listeners thought you were going to say Quibi as well. <laughs> How MoviePass evolved was they looked at the very real problem that ticket revenues were pretty stagnant. People weren't going to theaters anymore, and they really wanted to get more butts into seats. And MoviePass said, okay, we will just buy those seats outright and come in with a lot of VC money and spend it on full price tickets in order to get butts in seats. And the MoviePass goal there was they wanted to long-term become a distribu- distributor. They purchased the rights to two films, um, American Animals and Gotti, and they were trying to distribute with these theaters. And the long-term goal was if you want a MoviePass movie, you have to accept MoviePass and also give us a really nice cut of that ticket sale for MoviePass. Problem is they were spending more on a single movie than most people paying per month for movie pass and just the economics made no sense also american animals was fine but gaudy was atrocious and there were movie passes a whole other episode but i mean it's a smart game to want to play here yeah absolutely because this is uh yeah kind of coming back to the present we we talked about the the value chain of like the studios the distributors and the uh, the theaters but then right now what is happening is there's also kind of a value chain of if you just think vertically of how people access content right and you have the movie theaters where which they for a long time they had a, a very nice monopoly on you seeing new movies right this was the only way in town you had to see them and for a long time even re-releases right we talked uh, in the first episode we'll just say it again uh, Disney, for example, made a ton of money re-releasing their movies every 10, 15, 20 years because they knew a new generation would see them, they would get in theater, they, they make a lot of money there. And then, you know, uh, home video came, it was, you know, VHS and later DVD, but even still there, if you wanted to watch a movie, you could either go to the movie theater to watch a new movie, or you could watch an old movie, right? And if you think, if you think a little bit like a Badna uh, analysis, if you wanted to watch an old movie, it was relatively easy, but you still have to kind of go somewhere and you have to be a member of Blockbuster or whatever. You had to get it. You had to bring it back. You had to make sure to return it on time, etc., etc. All of a sudden, what's happening in the last couple of years, that bad luck kind of changes, right? Right now, it's incredibly easy. It's in 4K. It's instantaneous. For a lot of it, you don't even have to pay, right? It's including your Netflix or your HBO Max. You don't even have to rent it out. And suddenly, the theaters start looking around, I mean, like, okay, now we're actually not only competing between us, actually Netflix is kind of our competitors, right? We're we're fighting against the, these people. So, and they look at the studios and they're like, well, 
they want to help us because they got a lot of money, but they're also selling a lot of stuff. And now they're creating their own. And so then there is kind of all of this new, uh, kind of new interesting battle. Right. Uh, the Netflix point is interesting. I mean, we sp- spoke about the Irishman and Roma debacles earlier where just Netflix wanted to push up the release window. But another thing was the major chains just really didn't want to work with Netflix because, I mean, they are directly competing with them. And Netflix famously doesn't share viewership data. And they also found a way of kind of manipulating the box office statistics, which no box office statistics really ever got put out on films like Roma or Marriage Story or Irishman that were in theaters because Netflix engaged in a practice called four-walling, where they went to these independent chains. They worked with chains like Landmark, which are sizable chains in the United States, but have like 20 or 30 theaters in in major areas. They're, They're not massive compared to an AMC. And they just went and said, okay, at the Embargadera Cinema in San Francisco, we want to show Roma, and we will buy out the theater for two weeks. We will buy every ticket to it, and then every time you sell a ticket to the theater, just like put that on our tab. We'll, like we'll figure it out. But we're just yeah. gonna like buy out the entire theater, and that's that. So it's just this way of of shifting the model, and it really shows how much of the theater margins are threatened by people wanting more and more of a cut of that ticket sale. Which brings us to kind of how theaters evolved, which I'm not going to spend too much time on, but everyone knows that theaters make their money on concessions. But, I mean, <laughs> it makes total sense. If you have a fixed margin of 50% on a ticket, or as distributors have more and more power through these blockbuster films, maybe it's going to decrease from 50%. You want to find something where you can put sugar and water and charge a 90% markup and you're going to be just fine. Right. Isn't, oh, there is also this saying that uh, the movie theaters are in the popcorn business. They're not in the movie business. Yeah. Right. This is this is how they make money. And this is also kind of very connected to what, what you were just saying of how they evolve. I remember this when I'm going to bring a little bit of my international perspective because Mexico, I'm from Mexico and Mexico, it's a huge movie market. We are, we love going to the movies. They're very important. And it's, and I think it's like the fifth or sixth largest in terms of like revenue. It's important for the studios. And when you think of movie theaters as a distribution system, right? uh, Maybe 20 years ago, you could see like, yeah, I'm a movie theater. I'm in this town or I'm the, we're in San Francisco, right? You have the, in, in the Silicon Valley area, there is a Century 16 in Mountain View, right? And there isn't really anything close to me. So I know people are going to come to me and whenever they want to watch a movie, Carl talk about the margins. So I'm going to focus on concessions, but they didn't really compete that much, right? For me, it was unbelievable coming to the US and going to these movie theaters and saying, the movie theaters are significantly nicer in Mexico. And it seems like the, the movie theaters in Mexico realized significantly sooner that movie theaters, I don't know if this was explicit in their minds, but that it was all about the experience and how comfortable you were going to be and the types of food that you could get and how comfortable that you're going to are and getting you out of the home, not only for you to 
catch the movie, but to make a day or a night out of it, right? They knew or they saw or they just reacted without knowing that this is kind of where things were going and that the way to keep their business alive and their business thriving was to really make an experience out of it. So there is this company in Mexico called Cinepolis. I think they are like the third or fourth largest movie chain in the world in terms of uh, screens. And I don't know if they invented this kind of thing, but they came up with Cinepolis VIP, which is literally like what you see right now, the reclining seats that are leather, but they gave you a blanket and they have waiter service and they have a full menu with sushi, with chicken wings, with crepes, with sandwiches, with baguettes, with a full bar. It's incredibly comfortable. But even if you go to the regular Cinepolis, the concessions outside, they have 12 different flavors of popcorn. They have, Ariella, my partner and I were just talking, how when we think of crepes, like imagine a Nutella crepe, we don't think of Paris. We think of Cinepolis. We went to Cinepolis (laughs) to get a crepe when we went to the movie theater because it was all about that. And then coming to the US, it was always, oh, we're in a mall. My mother is shopping. Let's go to a movie. And we went in and we were like, "Uh, how about no? It, It doesn't look that interesting. And it was just always so so interesting to see and now that i we think from our nerd minds how movie theater is all about your experience you've talked a little bit and maybe you should say it again of how for you going to the movie it's kind of a religious thing you're going because you care about it and it means something but for a lot of people it doesn't and if they're not able to really bring these values so that people are willing to go and pay more and get out of their way versus something that they can just click the remote and turn it on and especially when the studios going that way there's they're gonna suffer i feel you on the going to a movie theater to get crepe situation because i had a much sadder version of that over (laughs) the last two years when i was living in the bay area going to that century 16 and mountain view which those of you that don't know it's essentially the google theater it's right next to the googleplex so google will just rent it out sporadically very weird theater, but pretty nice for a major chain theater. But being a former Texan myself, I love a good frozen margarita. And nowhere in San Francisco or the Bay Area makes frozen margaritas. They always make them on the rocks, which is, to me, yeah, I mean, it's probably the formally proper way to do it. But I want it frozen. But the Century 16 has this, like, icy machine that injects tequila and makes a really bad but, but pretty nostalgic frozen margarita. So I'd go there to get frozen margaritas. And Okay, but I have to say, you're making it sound like, like that place is beautiful and comfortable. And it's very nice. It's leather seats. But like the concessions there are, are pretty bad. They're pretty bad compared to, again, I'm from Mexico. People think of Mexico and think we just have hats and cactuses. It's not like that. It's a pretty developed country, but it's unbelievable how all of our movie theaters are nicer all of them significantly the problem nicer. is that theater is terrible but it's an it's like 80th percentile in the united states there's so many terrible theaters in the united states that just it's like it's passably nice which is like very rare to find uh i got spoiled living in dallas with the alamo draft house chain which is probably the biggest equivalent nationwide to Cinepolis. Uh, the, the, they focus more on the content and the distribution. They like to be film nerds. They like to have a large repertory cinema uh, side tangent. They show three times as many titles per year 
as AMC. So oh, that's a good number. Just, yeah, yeah. They show I think like something like fifteen hundred discrete titles across all all like forty Alamo Draft houses across the country. Insanely diverse film slate. But I mean, it's a film nerd thing, and that's how you have to approach it in the U.S. because it's not going to be. It hasn't been this this game of concessions, but. The thing about Alamo Drafthouse that makes them very successful is they are also a place where you go get a drink, you get you can eat a meal during it, there's always a bar attached to the theater. It's this whole location-based entertainment model that we're going to keep coming back to in this podcast because it's something that you and I are really drawn to. We mm-hmm. both like eating, we both love theme parks, we like movie theaters. We're really fascinated about businesses built around drawing people in and drawing people's attention for a few hours to get their just their attention and their money something that covid is threatening at the moment but i think will continue to thrive once we have a vaccine or whatever is going to happen next yeah hopefully because yeah cinepolis with the yeah the concessions but then i I see them starting to pop up in the u.s but they have you know the 4dx the one where the movie the seats move and like 10 years ago they created screening uh, they created screens that were specifically made for kids so that at the bottom of where the chairs used to be they would be like games for the kids to play and they would play them with literally so that the parents could go during the day they wouldn't turn the lights all the way down and it wouldn't be as loud so it's it's a family it's it's trying to tailor to the families and they they came out to try to find all of these all of these different levers that they can pull to get people in, and they've been incredibly successful. They have they have screens in India, in Indonesia, and in the U.S. They opened one in San Mateo, close to us, that I wanted to go check out. It's closed because of COVID, but if you live in Southern California, they have a couple of screens. I think all the ones in the U.S. are VIP, so they're going to be kind of on the pricier side. But really encourage you to go check it out because it it does feel like a like a separate like a different like a different experience. But you, you've touched on the wacky world of, of theaters, which is they really want to find ways to get extra margins on top of that pretty flat ticket rate. And they're trying so many weird things. I mean, a few years ago, the CEO of AMC announced that they're going to have texting screenings where you could text during movies and that, that blew up. And people were like, the whole point of me going to a theater is so I don't have this, so why would it matter? But in a world where, like Mexico, where you're actually going and it's a pretty normal experience to go to the theater rather than a special experience, then yeah, sure. Texting screenings probably could work, but or something like the, the kid-friendly screenings. Yeah, we also um, have but, one that I really enjoyed. I also love sports in general, so I love like football. They would have, they would screen in the movie theater every Monday night football, the big game of the week. You could go dress with your jersey and they would have special concessions and you could watch the game live in this huge screen. I, uh, in 2016, Alamo Drafthouse did all of the presidential debates, where if you paid 10 bucks prepaid for your food, you could come there and watch the debates, uh, which was interesting, except for the fact that everyone who's going to see that in an Alamo Drafthouse is a probably on the same page politically. So mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely thought that more people thought the same thing about uh, those debates that I did and created an echo chamber there. But that's... That's not another podcast. We won't touch that again. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, it, it's really cool to just see the diversification of it. 
and technology like 3D became big because it was a way to inflate ticket prices, uh, high frame rate cinematography, which really Peter Jackson and Ang Lee are the only people to do that at a wide scale. James Cameron was always rumored to do it, but like that was something that was going to be the next wave of the future and never really took off. But most theaters in the country can now display 60 FPS or higher frame rates on their projectors because of this. It's all about playing the game to figure out what's next. And I think just to kind of tie it up and go back to the news for the week, we're realizing maybe none of that matters and maybe it truly is just learning to play the game and take cuts where they can and figure out ways to make the distributors happy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's, it's so interesting because also seeing how the world changes. So we talked a little bit about how the, the Paramount decree kind of stopped all of the studios from owning uh, any theaters. Uh, some of the other thing that included there that they stopped them from doing was before they could ask the studios could come in and say, for my movie, this is what you have to charge. So then each theater would have to deal with that. And they had to stop that. So that's also why right now, you know, the movie theater that we go to could be $14. And then there is another one that can be $9.99 or whatever. And kind of something that we haven't mentioned is that the Department of Justice in the U.S. in 2018 said that they are kind of reviewing the Paramount decrease. And they see with good eyes kind of, uh, basically abolishing them and saying that they are not needed anymore. And I was just, as I was researching this week, my first reaction was always like, mm, this doesn't seem good. Like a lot of the parts of the antitrust are actually good, right? You and I, I think we've touched on competition is good. Competition is healthy. We want independent stuff to be able to fight versus the big guys. We, we really like that. But that's from the studio perspective. But for example, for this thing of that, the, the studios can set how much they want to charge. Imagine a world where, let's say the Century 16 here, right? That doesn't really compete, but kind of. If a studio comes in and say, for the new Star Wars movie, you have to charge $15 an hour. It forces the theaters to differentiate themselves in some way. So kind of breaking it up here, it kind of helps competition in another, in, in this other world, right? Right now we're talking about how they seem to be moving very slow and they don't realize that, well, maybe these could actually help them try to become more differentiated. And uh, I don't know, I remember talking with you about this, uh, the ability of a studio to buy a, a theater. And I know you have thoughts and takes, so please. Yeah, well, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head, which is it, it no longer, the your ability to produce a film and distribute it is no longer infringed or contained by the ability to show it in a theater. You can show it in so many avenues. You can post it on YouTube and get ad revenue if you want. There are so many avenues. And the Justice Department decided to repeal these rules mostly just because it, it didn't make any sense in the world of streaming. Like, technically, Disney owning a Disney Plus could be an antitrust violation of those rules that they put in place because they are owning beginning to end the production and distribution and exhibition but ultimately they still go to a, they still go to theaters they still go to the platforms they still go to amazon and apple and google and have vod deals like it it makes a little more more sense what i am worried about though is 
I'm worried about, but also intrigued by, is the ability of one of these firms to now purchase a theater chain. There's been rumblings of this, especially as theater chains like AMC look at bankruptcy for financial restructuring during COVID, just of who might be interested in picking up these pieces. So a name that gets banded a lot around a lot is Amazon. Amazon has had skin in the media production game more in TV than in film, but they've funded a lot of films. They have a spotty track record. I mean, last year, Warner Brothers and, uh, and Amazon lost millions on a movie called The Goldfinch, which I am one of like 10 people in the world that seems to like. And ultimately, <laughs> it just, they, they haven't done really well for themselves, but Amazon's a logistics business and they are a distribution business. If they purchase a theater chain, they can still make enough content to have their Amazon brand on the content, but also scoop a lot of money off the top by getting in bed with Disney and name a distributor that needs their monies and movies in the theater. I think, I think there's a play there and I think they could structure it in a way that the justice department wouldn't hate it from any antitrust perspective. I mean, you, you never know because two days, like this week we had a antitrust trial and the rumors of a TikTok acquisition in the same week. So who knows what's going on from antitrust perspective, but I think that's where there's synergies that start making a lot more sense beyond just the synergies of production. And that's where I think money could be injected into the ecosystem. Right. Yeah, I really like what you said of how things have changed. Like the reality of the world today is that it's not in the best interest of the producers to act like they did in the 30s, right? Whether it is, you mentioned the different types of theaters or the internet or streaming, it's just different. And I think this is kind of what makes us interested in this topic, right? When we say entertainment is kind of what the, what stock in development is about. It's kind of this intersection of media and traditional media and business models and technology and kind of how all of these kind of move together, right? We started saying that this conversation about a theater making a deal with studio. And in reality, there is so, so much happening and so many different plays and dimensions and things that if you don't think about, you realize, oh, well, but they actually are partners with this one, but they are enemies with this one. And it just, it just, it's, it's fascinating. And like, I think, yeah, if we start with the point of like things change, some of these things, we're going to be here to talk about them. Yeah. And that's the goal of this podcast is, as the situation develops, we're going to be here stuck in development and <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on next. This is not going to be the last episode on theaters. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back a lot and see what happens. So as we're wrapping up, we are trying to figure out what we're doing for the last few minutes of every podcast. And right now it's more of a either get a strategy perspective from each other kind of vibe or in this case, it's going to be more a interview sort of vibe to get to know each other a little bit better and help Ooh. our listeners get to know each other better. So, okay. Eitan, what is your preferred movie snack? Huh. Okay, and just as context, I didn't know what this question was. <laughs> and hopefully going forward, we'll expand this into an AUA, ask us anything. You'll be able to ask us a question and ask us for yeah. things. Okay. 
am I in a Cinepolis or am I in a regular theater in the US? This is exactly the thing that I was hoping <laughs> you would ask because I'm going to have the same exact thing where if I'm in an Alamo Draft House or I'm in a normal theater. So both. Okay. If I'm in a US AMC Cinemark movie theater, I like butter, uh, popcorn, just regular ones, buy a pack of M&M's and mix them. I really like that mix. And to drink Diet Coke. In, yeah, easy to please. If I'm in Mexico, I am in Cinepolis, I get the tajin flavored popcorn, which is amazing. And I get a Nutella and banana crepe from the crepe bar, which is different from the concessions. And I probably get like a frappuccino, like a smoothie of, of some sort. And usually, as you're probably realizing, going to the movies in Mexico, also you go during a meal, <laughs> you either have dinner or lunch or something. <laughs> so, so something like that. I think those would be. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I really try not to do a lot of movie theater concession snacking because if I'm going to a movie like once a week or multiple times a week that like adds up financially and calorically, though I did find the last few years of business school, movies were like my like few hours alone away from everyone kind of de-stressing. So because I'm de-stressing, I'm going to probably eat or whatever and it's not as good. Uh, but I'm not pretty simple. I, I like to get like one thing usually or two things. Uh, if I'm in a normal theater, I my favorite thing is either depending on the theater. I like the Nestle dibs that come mm, in like a yes, little good choice thing. They're just like it's just like bad ice creams rather than chocolate. But I think it's good. What is what is bad ice cream, Carl? What okay, do you mean? Bad... That's a that's a fallacy. What's how do you call those things? That's a paradox or so sorry that's i have a strong take about ice cream bad ice cream okay sorry continue it's like the whole pizza is like sex thing right like even if it's bad it's still good like yeah with ice cream i guess it's the same and i agree with that but formally i would say bad ice cream is ice cream that's loaded with methyl cellulose so that whenever it starts okay. melting it actually starts congealing because the colloids within the ice cream are designed to lower the melt rate of the ice cream. But that's my chemical engineering nerd take, which that's not going to come up very much in this podcast, <laughs> so I wanted to flex that. Anyway, bad ice cream surrounded by chocolate in a little container, and you can have it snack size, but it's great because it's ice cream, and it's cold, and it's wonderful. If they don't have that, some theaters also have, like, they'll keep junior mints in their little freezer that they would keep ice cream in. So I get that instead, but I like just like cold snacks at the theater. And usually I'm the sort of person that just like eats their snack quickly and I'm done. Like I'm not nursing something and like I hate having popcorn because I just keep eating it the whole time and I feel sick afterwards. So no to popcorn. Uh, if I'm at a draft house, I usually keep it simple in as much as I just get drinks. Like uh, the draft house in San Francisco has a Vucare on their menu, which is a just wonderfully strong and simple drink for a movie theater. So just brown in a glass with some ice and it's great. So that's my, that's my move at Alamo draft. House. 
very nice. I I have to admit, even though I'm a nerd about these things, I've never been to an Alamo Draft House, so you need to take me when the world opens. I'll take you to an Alamo Draft House, and you can take me into a Zinepolis. Deal. There was one in the Palisades in LA this summer that I almost went to, but they never had a movie I wanted to see that I hadn't already seen once, and wasn't about to go pay and see, like, I don't know, Hobbs and Shaw. Like, I didn't want to see Hobbs and Shaw, and I'm not going to go pay premium prices to go see it with a blanket. Perfect. We'll go figure it out at some point. That's a deal. That's a deal. I'll take you to a you take me to an Alamo Draft House. Cool. With that, we're done for the week. This has been an experiment with the format, trying to scale it down a little bit. Please let us know what you're thinking about this podcast. Let us know if you have questions. We'd love to populate the end of the show or even do an episode a month that's just random spitball questions and takes. We love talking to each other. We hope you love listening to us. And just we're here for you to kind of learn about what's going on in entertainment. So with that, this has been Stuck in Development. I'm Carl. And I'm Eitan. Thanks for listening. See you next week.